When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, listeners, just a quick update on some things that are going on around my neck of the woods. So as you know, I am the creator and founder of the Texas Podcast Union, which helps facilitate meetups for our local Texas podcasters. I am excited to announce that we are officially back in 2022, and our first meetup is going to be on March 19th at Wine House in Fort Worth. I'm going to post some details in the show notes, and I hope that you guys join us there. You can RSVP on the Eventbrite link. And another exciting announcement that you might not know, I am the co-founder of the True Crime Podcast Festival. If you recall, back in 2019, our first festival was held in Chicago, and it was a smashing success. And then COVID came around and took us down. But here we are again, 2022, and we are bringing back the True Crime Podcast Festival. This year, we're going to be in my hometown of Dallas, Texas, and our dates are August 26th through the 28th. You'll be able to see some of your favorite podcasters live and in living color, and I am so excited. I'll also be posting a link to the True Crime Podcast Festival in the show notes, so please, if you're interested in coming, I can't wait to see you there, and it's going to be the best time ever. So, okay, enough of the business, on to the show. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. In today's episode, you will hear actual 911 calls. We advise extreme caution while listening. If you are a victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Unfortunately, we discuss domestic violence all too often on this show. One reason is because there are 20 people per minute who are abused by an intimate partner in the United States. This equates to more than 10 million men and women annually. 15% of all violent crimes are due to intimate partner violence. There are 20,000 calls made to domestic call centers each day in the United States. Many times, a victim of this form of abuse calls 911 in the hopes officers will be able to respond in time. The International Association of Chiefs of Police has created guidelines on how law enforcement agencies should respond to domestic violence and how 911 telecommunication operators should respond. Most of the time, officers are able to respond quickly and effectively to these calls. But sadly, 
there are times that the violence plays out on the 911 call with fatal consequences. Okay, on to the show. October 1, 2016, a 911 call was placed in Macomb County, Michigan. When the operator answers, a calm female can be heard telling someone to leave. When the 911 operator finally gets her attention, Ebony explains she and her husband have been arguing and she wants him to leave. 
It was after midnight and she just wanted him to leave and come back later, particularly because her 16-year-old son from another marriage was home. The 911 operator asked routine questions such as name, as well as safety questions regarding weapons. Ebony initially said her husband was not armed, but then acknowledged there was a gun in the bedroom. When asked if the gun was locked up, Ebony replied, No, it's not, which was followed by numerous loud noises, later determined to be gunshots. When the sounds stopped, the operator said, Hello? several times, and received no reply. Within minutes, officers were on the scene. They arrived to find Ebony and her husband, Hal Byram, lying on the floor at the foot of the stairs. Hal had shot Ebony multiple times, then turned the 40 caliber handgun on himself, shooting himself in the neck. Hal was still breathing and was transported to an undisclosed medical facility for treatment, where he remained for several weeks. Ebony's son called 911 three minutes after the initial call by Ebony. He had been playing video games online, and his online friend also called 911 after hearing the disturbance. A second telecommunications officer spoke to Ebony's son and told him how to get out of the house safely, since the house was surrounded by deputies. He was physically unharmed. He stayed with Ebony's family until he could reunite with his father, who lived out of state. Ebony was shot ten times at close range and was pronounced dead at the scene. The forty caliber was registered to Howe, although it appeared he did not have a conceal and carry license. However, one is not required in Michigan for a handgun kept at home. Arrest warrants were issued for Hal Byram just days later after Ebony's death. However, he was still in the hospital, recovering from his self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was arraigned while in his hospital bed three weeks after the shooting, and he was ordered to be held without bond. Hal Byram spent several months in the hospital recovering. He had to be fed intravenously for three months, and then when he recovered from that, he went on a hunger strike for several months. Finally, in May 2018, a court injunction was obtained to force-feed Hal Byram. In June 2018, Hal's attorney appeared before Judge Douglas Shepard. He asked for a delay so Hal could regain his strength, telling the judge, quote, He does appear to be gaining weight. That will allow him to gain more strength, and participate more meaningfully in the proceedings. The judge agreed to delay the proceedings, but only for a month or so, with the understanding we have to move his case in a reasonable manner. The next month, July 2017, a hearing was held to determine if Howe was fit to stand trial. Ebony's sister, Crystal Kent Harver, was in the courtroom and addressed Howe after the 911 call was played. She told him, That was a shooting. That was you shooting her nine times, nine times, rapid fire, no hesitation. I wanted him to be aware of that. She also urged others, Just please watch who you bring home, watch who you date, watch who you love because everybody is not for you. Hal Byram was ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation in September 2017 and was found competent and criminally responsible. A hearing was held on December 7, 2017, with the trial date set for early March 2018. In March 2018, as jury selection was slated to begin, Hal Byram spoke up 
and told Judge Joseph Toya he wanted to plead guilty to the first-degree murder charge as well as the felony weapons charge. The Macomb County prosecutor, Eric Smith, said, The defendant has the absolute right to plead guilty if he wants, and he said he wanted to plead guilty for a while. He said he wanted to save the families the trauma of going through the case. It didn't matter to us one way or another, as either way, he will serve the rest of his life behind bars. Hal's sentencing hearing was scheduled for April 11, 2018, but that morning he refused to appear at the hearing. Ebony's sister, Crystal Kintarver, addressed the court saying, Him not coming today is just another way of him controlling the situation. He did not have to shoot her nine times, you know, and I... She faltered, a little emotional, saying, Sometimes I wish every day that he had died that day with her, but I get more gratification from the fact that he's going to die a slow and painful death. Crystal added that Hal frequently controlled Ebony, including installing cameras inside their residence. She said, He didn't have to shoot her nine times. Crystal revealed she had been with Ebony at their condo about an hour before Ebony was shot. She told the court that Ebony's son was living in Texas with his father, but he hasn't been the same since. Camry Smith, another one of Ebony's sisters, said, I know that you didn't want to show up because you know that you hurt my family, and I know that you see that you hurt my family really bad. She sobbed, then regained her composure. You broke us in many ways that we'll never be able to repair. I just ask that you suffer and that you understand our pain and understand what we're going through. Camry called Ebony a vibrant, compassionate, empathetic person. Hal's attorney had tried to convince Hal to go to court because he believed he could have been found guilty on a lesser charge of second-degree murder, which would have allowed for parole after a number of years. In the days following Ebony's death, their neighbors in their subdivision were shocked to find out that Hal had shot Ebony. The couple, who had only been married for about a year, always seemed to be loving. There were no prior calls about domestic disputes at their residence, and they had lived there for almost two years. One of their neighbors said Hal always liked to talk about cars, and they teased each other about who kept their cars the cleanest. Friends and family all said Ebony was smiling and that she was a compassionate and skilled nurse. After a long day, I just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters I can love and hate. Is that too much to ask? Not anymore, thanks to Sundance Now. I always have something to watch that's binge-worthy and that I can be obsessed with. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. They've got shows like the hit British series A Discovery of Witches, I've already watched it, it's amazing, and you are going to absolutely love it, I promise you. It's exactly what I love. It's the perfect mix of a period drama, romance, and an edge-of-your-seat thriller. Seasons 1, 2, and the final season, season 3, are streaming now. So you have all you need to binge right now. 
You can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. That's the cost of a cup of coffee, maybe even cheaper than your current coffee order. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code TCFC. That's SundanceNow.com, code TCFC, for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com, code TCFC. There's honestly nothing more important than taking care of yourself. Because if you're not feeling your best, you can't be your best. Sambucol helps you feel your best with powerful immune support powered by nature's superfruit, black elderberry. Now listen, I'm a new mom, so I don't have time to feel down and out, so I make sure to incorporate my Sambucol in my everyday life. It has been something really, really important to start off my day. I feel like I'm taking control with Sambucol because it helps support my immune system, and I feel like I'm doing my body good by taking Sambucol every day. It has a great taste. I honestly love the gummies the best. So sometimes I feel like starting off my day with a nice warm cup of water and I'll actually use the Sambucol drink powder in there and it tastes so good. It's really, really refreshing and makes me feel like it's an easy thing to incorporate into my wellness routine. Best of all, Sambucol is a trusted brand. It's the original black elderberry and was developed by a virologist. So I know I'm getting a great quality product and you can too. Get 15% off your next order of $9.99 or more at SambucolUSA.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. That's SambucolUSA.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A.com. Use FAN15 for 15% off. Back again to talk about FunJet. Now, I don't know about you, but I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. And just like FunJet, I call those fun expected moments. And I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. You deserve them. Surprise yourself where you could go at FunJet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. The next 911 call is equally horrifying to hear. Although the audio is not very clear, the panic and fear in the victim's voice is evident, while the killer's voice sounds calm and calculating. This isn't the entire call, which is over 17 minutes long, but this is enough to grasp what the last few moments of life were like for Deanna Cook. <laughs> Hello, do you need to leave the ambulance? I need an ambulance. 
17, 2012, at 10.52 a.m., Deanna Cook called 911 from her cell phone. On the call, Deanna can be heard begging a man she identifies as Red, Del Vecchio, and Baby to please stop. Deanna asks him, Deanna asks, Deanna asks him why he's doing this to her. The male tells her to get the fuck down and that he is going to kill her. By the end of the call, Deanna can no longer be heard. There is a dog barking in the background, and the male repeating, I'll kill you. I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna kill you. The 911 operator then asks again, Hello, ma'am? Do you need police, fire, ambulance? Hello? The call disconnects, and she tries to call the number back at 11.10 a.m. and 11.12 a.m., but the calls went straight to voicemail. Officers arrived at the house approximately an hour after the initial call was made. They attempted to make contact with Deanna, but no one answered the door. They walked around the house and couldn't see any exterior signs of a disturbance. The responding officers tried to call Deanna, too, but it continued to go to voicemail. They did not believe there was a reason to make entry into the home, since the call had been a disturbance call and not an offense. On August 19th, 2012, Deanna did not arrive at church, where she attended with her mother, Vicki Cook. After church, Vicki went to Deanna's house to check on her, accompanied by her daughter and Deanna's two daughters. The front door and the back gate were both locked, so one of Deanna's daughters jumped the fence to open the gate. When the ladies went into the backyard, 
they noticed water running out of the garage. Carlita, Deanna's sister, kicked in the back door. Once they got into the house, a terrible stench assaulted them. The smell was so bad that Carlita ran out of the house. Vicky noticed the entire house was flooded, with water over her feet. She also noticed how messy the house was, which was not normal. Deanna kept a very tidy house, but there was stuff thrown everywhere. Vicky went into the bathroom where she saw a shadow behind the curtain, which turned out to be Deanna. The family called 911, and first responders arrived at Deanna's house. One of the first responders was Carl Lumden, who was a Dallas firefighter and paramedic. One of the first things he noticed was the mess in the house and how the carpet and other flooring was soaked. Water was actually running out of the house and into the street. Carl went into the bathroom and observed Deanna's body and knew that she was beyond medical help. She was bloated and swollen, and he would later testify that most bodies don't look like that unless they've been drowned. Deanna was face down in the tub with her feet outside the tub. He turned off the faucet. Then he and his team preserved the scene until police arrived. The first police officer on the scene, Samuel Bryant, also observed water running out of the house and down the street. When he entered the house, he saw the deep water throughout and then saw that the bedroom door had damage. The frame was broken and the lock was on the outside of the door. Inside the bedroom, the mattress was off the frame and things were knocked off the dresser and walls. Another officer described the scene. There was water all throughout the house. The back door had been forced open. The bedroom door had been forced open as well. The bedroom was in the appearance that there may have been a struggle. You know, things that were out of place that wouldn't have naturally been out of place. Lamps knocked down, bed flipped over, water throughout the bedroom, throughout the bathroom, and the deceased was in the bathtub. Deanna's ex-husband, Del Vecchio Patrick, was arrested the same day she was found. He was arrested on active warrants in Bulk Springs, Texas, where he lived with his stepfather. Del Vecchio was seen on Deanna's street on August 17th by her mail carrier and a neighbor. The neighbor saw Del Vecchio around lunchtime that day, shirtless and shoeless, sitting on a white car. Deanna and Del Vecchio had a tumultuous relationship dating back to 2008. On January 3rd, 2009, a friend was visiting Deanna while Del Vecchio came home in a rage, yelling, Why you ain't answering the phone? The friend left the room for a few minutes, and when she came back, Del Vecchio was on top of Deanna. The door was already off the hinges from a previous time he had kicked the door down. The friend started yelling at him to let her go, and he dropped Deanna, but told her friend to shut up or he would do the same to her. She went outside and called the police and could hear him still beating Deanna. When officers arrived on the scene and spoke to Deanna, she said Del Vecchio had grabbed her by the neck, choked her, and threatened her with a knife. Officers noted finger marks on her neck and her raspy voice. Deanna said she wanted a protective order and officers gave her a family violence package. On March 20, 2010, Deanna ran to her neighbor's house with only her bra and panties on. She started beating on the door, screaming, 
He's trying to get me. He's trying to get me. Open the door. Open the door. When the neighbors opened the door, Deanna started yelling, He's trying to kill me. He's trying to kill me. While trembling. The neighbor said she was covered in bruises. Del Vecchio was standing in the yard, but when Deanna went inside, he ran off. Del Vecchio went to a nearby La Quinta motel where an employee called the police. When the officer arrived, he found Del Vecchio sitting in the lobby. Del Vecchio told the officer he had left because he had a warrant out for his arrest. Del Vecchio had a stab wound to his back in the shoulder area. He also had some wounds to his mouth and arms. The possible weapon was found at Deanna's house and was a tire ream, which is a tool that is similar to an ice pick. Even though Deanna said he had assaulted her, she was arrested. Officer said she did not complain of any injuries, and he had a puncture wound. She was acquitted on this charge at a later date. The officer who responded to this incident later testified he had responded numerous times to calls at their home. He said they were all major domestic disturbances, and each time, Deanna had been beaten pretty badly. In fact, the warrant Del Vecchio had on him that night was from a previous domestic disturbance. Each time officers responded, Del Vecchio was nowhere to be found. On May 25, 2011, another call came from Deanna's residence. When officers arrived, Del Vecchio was there arguing with Deanna. Deanna had lacerations on her hands, which were defensive wounds. Del Vecchio had pulled a knife on Deanna, and she put up her hands. He was arrested that night. On July 28, 2012, Deanna called 911 and asked for officers to remove Del Vecchio from her neighborhood. This was a second call that day for the same thing. Del Vecchio had been telling Deanna she better not go to work. Deanna asked officers not to let Del Vecchio know she had called because it enraged him and he would tear up stuff in her house. Officers found him in the park across the street from Deanna's house. He had two bags of clothes and he told them he was waiting on his niece to pick him up. Since it was late at night, officers just took him to his stepfather's house in Balk Springs. On Sunday, August 12, 2012, Deanna and Del Vecchio were at church, which surprised her mother. Vicky said this wasn't normal and that they were both acting odd. She said Deanna was unnaturally quiet and Del Vecchio was all up in it. Vicky asked Del Vecchio what was going on and he said everything was all right. Vicky spoke with her daughter on the phone every day that week. The last time was on Friday, August 17th, when both Deanna and Vicky were on the prayer line for church. When they said goodbye, Vicky had no idea it would be the last time she spoke with her daughter. The last text from Deanna was at 9.34 a.m., and it said, about to take a nap. On August 16th, Deanna called 911 and said she was going to work and had seen Del Vecchio in the neighborhood. She was afraid he was going to break into her house and asked if officers would drive by and check on it. She told the operator that he had tried to kill her three times, but she still couldn't get a restraining order against him. Vicky couldn't reach Deanna on Saturday, and Deanna wasn't on Facebook. This was unusual because Deanna stayed on Facebook all the time. Del Vecchio reached out to Vicky on Saturday night and said that he had seen Deanna on Wednesday night and that he had sent his 
homeboys to Deanna's house, but she didn't answer. He called Vicky again on Sunday morning before church and said this time that he had seen Deanna on Thursday night. He repeated the statement that he had sent friends over to check on her. No one answered, but the dog was barking. On August 17th, 164 calls had been made from the landline at Del Vecchio's stepfather's house to Deanna's cell phone. Deanna's cell phone hit Tower 559 during the 911 call, but after the call, it hit three other towers. Her phone was never found. The autopsy on Deanna was conducted on August 20, 2012. Deanna's remains had decomposed a great deal before being found, and fluid only remained in her chest cavity for samples. PCP and alcohol were found in the fluids, but the levels had degraded, so it was hard to tell how intoxicated these substances would have made Deanna. However, the medical examiner did not believe the PCP played a role in her death. It was revealed at Del Vecchio's trial that Deanna had used PCP since her teen years. Experts testified that PCP can cause hallucinations, delusions, violent behavior, suicidal thoughts, bizarre behavior and thoughts, and even death in some situations. The PCP was the defense's strategy. Dr. Christy Compton did a psychological autopsy on Deanna, stating she was mentally ill. Dr. Compton said perception is reality and that Deanna imagined she was being attacked. However, this expert opinion could not explain who the male was on the 911 call, who responded when Deanna called Del Vecchio. During the trial, Del Vecchio flipped off Deanna's daughter as she spoke, then laughed at one of her sisters as she read an impact statement. After three and a half hours of deliberation, the jury found Del Vecchio Patrick guilty of murder. The following week, they sentenced him to 85 years in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. The handling of the horrific murders of Deanna and Ebony could not be more different. In Ebony's case, officers were on the scene within minutes. In Deanna's case, there were multiple violations of 911 call center policy, and officers who responded to the disturbance had no haste in mind. The 911 supervisor during that time had left the room against policy. The call taker who answered Deanna's call had the title of call taker, and so a senior call taker assisted her with the call. Deanna, not surprisingly, did not provide her address on the 911 call, so the call takers had to triangulate her location using cell towers. However, the street name and block range did appear on the call center screen, which could have been used to dispatch officers to the area while an address was located. It was 10 minutes into the call before the information was passed along to police dispatch with the note, urgent, but neither the call taker nor senior call taker contacted police dispatch with the information that someone be dispatched immediately. The call taker also later said she couldn't hear anything because of other noises in the call center. The senior call taker advised her to disconnect from Deanna's call and call her back, but of course, did not receive an answer. When the call was received by police dispatch, even though it was marked as urgent, the dispatcher put the call out as a volunteer call. Two officers accepted the call, then, while en route, took a burglar alarm call. After that, 
they decided to stop at a 7-Eleven and asked dispatch to remove them from the cook call. They also worked on a previous incident report. Dispatch misunderstood and eventually, without lights or sirens, about an hour after Deanna first made the call, the two officers arrived at Deanna's house. They knocked on the door and looked around the front of the house, but did not peer into any windows or make much of an effort because they heard Deanna's two dogs barking. Chihuahuas. On Sunday, when Deanna's mother went to the house and could not get in, she contacted 911 for assistance. That 911 call taker told Vicky that the Dallas Police Department would not respond and said Vicky would have to contact jails and hospitals to look for Deanna. Twelve minutes after this first call, Vicky called 911 again and spoke to a different operator who advised her to exit the building and wait on first responders. On August 25, 2012, at a community meeting in South Dallas, Police Chief David Brown admitted that the Police Communication Center had caused Deanna's death by saying the 911 operator obviously failed at that and it cost the life of Miss Cook. Mayor Rawlings admitted, our safety net wasn't there for her. The initial call taker on Deanna's call was suspended. The supervisor that night was reprimanded and the operator Vicky spoke with seeking assistance for her missing daughter was fired. Deanna's murder brought to light the fact that the Dallas call center had inadequate technology, poor operations, inadequate training, insufficient staffing, and insufficient disciplinary procedures. There were 90 positions in the call center at the time of Deanna's death, but only 64 of these were filled. Many operators were working overtime to try to fill in shifts. Moreover, Chief Brown admitted officers respond to critical calls within six minutes, but it took at least 50 minutes for officers to arrive at Deanna's house. Her call was not taken seriously. After her death, changes were implemented in hiring procedures, technology, and training. Vicki Cook, her daughter, and granddaughters filed a lawsuit against the city of Dallas for their improper response that led to Deanna's death. As of this writing, there does not appear to be a resolution to the suit. It was initially decided that the city of Dallas was immune from prosecution, but the case went to the Court of Appeals where it was likely stalled due to COVID-19. Listeners, I know that domestic violence calls and cases are very difficult to hear, but as a survivor of seeing and witnessing domestic violence and my mother being a survivor of domestic violence, I think it's important to know and hear these stories so that you can understand the impact that domestic violence has on families as a whole. To this day, I'm still triggered by things that happened to my mother, and I'm sure my mother is too by the abuse that she endured. All that to say, I know that this episode was likely difficult for you to hear, but I hope that it encourages you to reach out to your friend who might need some help and give them the resources when they're ready. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. 
This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. And this time, edited, and this time, edited by me, Lainey, at True Crime Fan Club Podcast because I was a little late in submitting this episode to Neeks at We Talk of Dreams, who is still the most amazing person in the whole entire world. So follow him on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.